with socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Buongiorno, folks, and welcome to episode 23, the second installment in our series on the national debt. Now, last week, we heard from historian David Thompson on the one time the U.S. defaulted and learned that to have a federal government the size most voters want right now, we need to get comfortable carrying some kind of debt. But how much is too much? Well, for adherence to modern monetary theory, that's the wrong question to ask. As a country that issues debt in the currency it prints, can't not come up with the money to pay its bills. Kind of like if Chili's was its own country and paid its creditors in gift certificates. Now, there is a little more nuance than that, but the real questions modern monetary theorists want to answer is where is the money being spent and what inflation and unemployment tell us about the need to tinker with the money supply. And so to help fill in the blanks, I invited Greg Hanskin, former research associate at the Levy Economics Institute and author of the blog, greghanskin.org, to help us out. So, are you a fiscal hawk or a fiscal dove, if there is such a thing? Tell me how you feel after this. I found your blog by, you know, I was doing some research on modern monetary theory. And and the article that really caught my eye was news on $1 trillion deficits, the fundamental reason to worry much less, which which I thought was great because I'm, I think, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the United States kind of breaks into two camps, which is uh, either those who don't really think or worry about the debt and then those who kind of have like this gnawing sensation on their insides over the trillions and trillions of dollars we're building up. And do you feel that's the general sentiment? I think I think that's right. I think some people worry, and they worry unduly, though. I think uh, some economists do even, or a great many do. I don't want to get too deep into modern monetary theory without laying the groundwork for the listeners, but the the basis behind modern monetary theory, in a way, is that deficits are aren't necessarily the most important thing when it comes to what to worry about. Is that is that a fair assessment, or, or no? Yeah, neither deficits nor debt are something that should bother us all that much in themselves. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's their effects on the economy that that matter. What are the things we should be worried about, or what are the things people should be focused on instead of the size of the deficit or the size of the debt? Right now, there is very high unemployment in much of the world, where it's you know the U.S. is a bit out of step there. There's reason to worry about instability due to private debt in, because of private lending. And all those things affect every economy. Generally, these, these systems do work. I mean, the, the U.S. pretty much spends what, it's, what it wants to without problems of, of running out of money. And so it's a matter of judgment to you know, have the policies that will, you know, make things, unemployment and inflation and the things that macroeconomic policy affects go well, and also a good set of regulations. There are examples of this uh, employer of last resort idea, which is also part of MMT, 
And employer of last resort would basically be, if you can't find a job in the private sector, the government will find a place for you. Is that correct? That is the basic idea that, in essence, you would be eligible for such a job. When I look at the global economy as it stands today, and and I look at maybe what's gone on you know, over the last 20 to 30 years, what's created a lot of the, the strife here in the U.S. and to an extent abroad as well, you know, a lot of it seems to be that the, the ability for countries to find and companies to find cheaper ways to get something done outside of their country of residence is a lot easier. The oft-cited example is the relationship between the U.S. and China, where for years, U.S. manufacturing has moved to China, but moved to other parts of the world as well to be done cheaper. Americans are able to buy cheaper goods, but then there's this group kind of stuck in the middle, the folks who were working in the factories and weren't able to get other jobs. And so they've kind of suffered under that. It seems to me like if we're to take the idea of MMT into play, you know, you have this sort of segment of the economy that's in deficit, and that is the area where maybe the public sector should come and fill that. Am I right on that, or am I am I misunderstanding things? I think that that is one role for a program like an employer of last resort program yeah. or a similar program to pick up the slack a little bit in terms of employment. I, I think that MMT isn't mostly about those issues. But it certainly speaks to, in essence, picking up the slack somewhat about, you know, when jobs are moved overseas, you know, I think that's an important problem too. And so, you know, the basic, the basic idea, like the cornerstone of MMT though, is that if you have a nation that issues its debt or that issues its debt in its own currency, then that nation can never go into default effectively because they can they can they effectively can create the money to pay their obligations is that is that right yeah basically but i would add that you know it has to be in essence uh, paper money and mm-hmm. it doesn't seek to fix the value of its currency in terms of another currency which is you know a policy that can get in the way of being able to to spend in those ways. So you're right that in essence, then there's no concern about default. Generally, that's when reason yields on bonds of a country like the United States, you know, stay very low. Yeah, because it seems like, I mean, I'm thinking back to the, when the US credit rating was, was lowered. And the issue wasn't necessarily the size of the debt. It was more the the political will, or it was more what was going on in our government at the time, the fact we couldn't reach a conclusion over the <laughs> debt ceiling. And it sounds to me like the bigger threat isn't necessarily the size of the debt, but do we have the political will to make the right decisions around it? And and that's really what the markets are more concerned about than how much debt we're taking on. Is that is that fair? I think in the case of the U.S., that's that's generally true. They're, the concern is interesting. I don't think they would have ever actually defaulted very long, but it did show, uh, in essence, confusion and dysfunction in the budgetary process, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and maybe a lack of of, of political will. 
uh, yeah. in, indeed to, you know, do a yeah. particular thing that would be good, you know, good policy. You know, obviously there's, there's a, there's a group in, in Congress and a group of, of folks out there who are really concerned about spending, really concerned about debt. And they're kind of, in a lot of ways, pressuring their members of Congress to take this hardline stance and to effectively sort of plug a hole. Like, what would you say to those people? I would be uh, thinking that in essence, there, there should not be concern so much about deficits per se. There's no, you know, you could never have a deficit that was too high. But of course, uh, you know, there's no sign of that right now. Unemployment is relatively low compared to how it has been, say, in the past, you know, 30 years. We have fairly low levels. But, but you know, inflation doesn't seem to be taking off. And so there, the, the idea would be to get rid of a lot of the rules that, in essence, have to do with debt or deficits per se. It, it's a complicated budgetary process, and it can lead to a lot of irrational things. And at the risk of asking the American population to do more than one thing at once, the idea wouldn't be necessarily to worry so much about the debt per se, but worry about the debt as part of a mixture of other factors out there, such as unemployment, economic growth, and, and inflation, and so on. Is that is that what I'm hearing? That's right. If you create more debt, what are the effects of that? Say you run a, mm -hmm. a deficit, you know, versus not. One effect is that there are more of these government liabilities out there mm -hmm. in people's portfolios. So there is an essence. Mm -hmm an increase in the net liabilities of the government. And these, these are uh, safe assets. That's one mm -hmm. good side of it to look at. So you have increase in relatively risk-free kinds of assets that banks can put on their portfolios, insurance companies mm -hmm. that have to, in essence, uh, manage themselves conservatively in, in their finances and get something where they, they know it'll be paid back, where there will be you know, no default risk. Mm -hmm. And you also, of course, add the, you know, some form of uh, income to the economy. So in essence, someone is going to get that money and that will be income for them. And debt, it, it, it has a lot of good effects in essence, and it is one of many things that might play into an, a scenario where you wound up with inflation. Many things can happen. Inflation is a complicated thing. And when, in general, there should not be a problem unless all of this new debt is, in essence, going to overinflate uh, demand. That would be the, the scenario in which it would work in some manner or another. It would get inflate, you know, unemployment too low, perhaps where wages started to increase way more than than a reasonable level. The kinds mm -hmm. of targets the Fed contemplates, mm -hmm. and I don't think we are near that right now. And so I would urge Congress and and the president to think in terms of functional finance. That, in general, mm -hmm. think in terms of those goals: unemployment and inflation. In where they are, and if inflation is pretty tame, I, I, mm -hmm. there are very few scenarios where you have to worry. 
Yeah, you know, because as you're talking to, I'm, I'm thinking of, we've obviously, we've been speaking in real mathematical and theoretical terms. And I think to maybe put it in real terms, you know, when I kind of look at the economy today and I, I hear about the unemployment numbers or I hear about GDP growth and, and so on. The one thing I, I think about is if you take sort of the human impact of what's going on, yes, job growth is up. However, it could be argued a lot of those jobs are coming without the things people need to survive. So for example, health benefits or a, a living wage. You know, a, a, a great example is where we see a lot of communities where Walmart is one of the bigger employers and they effectively have their employees subsidized by food stamps, which they then spend at Walmart. So there are issues like that coming up. And in a lot of ways, if I'm to put this in a more human example, if we think about the goal being economic growth ultimately, and the goal being an elevation of the quality of life of the country, then in a lot of ways, again, if I'm president of the United States and Congress all in once, you know, really where, where I would be focused more is on how do we use public debt or how do we use public financing to plug those gaps that the private sector isn't plugging for us? How do we use it to plug the gaps for the folks who don't have adequate health care, let's say? Or how do we use it to plug the gaps for the folks who aren't earning a living wage? And I don't know, I'll ask for your comment on that because I feel like they're they're kind of related in in terms of not worrying so much about the debt, but worrying about how you spend it and where you spend it. Yes, I think that's right. I think another area would be various forms of hidden unemployment. Uh, there are still people, mm-hmm. you know, working part time who would rather have full time jobs. For example, mm-hmm. when we get to employment, I agree a hundred percent with what you said. Another another kind of gap uh, is is frankly, you know, aging infrastructure. The engineers tell us there are a lot of things, uh, you know, still to be done, bridge repairs and so on, that kind of thing. So I think in terms of need, really the needs of the country, the possibility of, uh, you know, a Green New Deal that's for, uh, you know, a very urgent matter to consider rather than how much debt it's going to create. As long as you don't have a scenario where in some manner or another inflation is you know thrown thrown off and it does not appear to be going that way right now yeah i mean do you think at, at least in the united states where we are you know we have the we're in the fortunate position of having the world's reserve currency and a fortunate position of being able to issue treasuries that are virtually viewed as no risk investments across the world it seems like we almost have the luxury of maybe transcending what we know as modern capitalism in a way. And instead of having this, the system that we've had where, you know, everybody has a job and that job pays for, or, or what you get out of that job effectively is going to provide for everything you need. So I'll go get a job and that will provide for food, housing, clothing, and so on. You know, it seems like in the modern economy, the, the, using the job as the sole source of economic supply is almost outdated because if you are going to have a dynamic growing economy like the one we have that's innovating at a very rapid clip you're going to have people who are who all of a sudden are 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 at the short end of that equation 
you know, as we see in the Rust Belt. And so it almost seems to me like if we're to use this wisely or if we're to think wisely about this, that in a lot of ways we can use our position as the world's reserve currency to create a cushion for the people who are going to lose in this equation and create a situation where we can allow that rapid dynamism, that rapid innovation without worrying about putting people out on the streets. I think, I think you're right that in essence, um, we're lucky indeed that we are able to do those things and things have to be considered and, and uh, you know, Congress has to decide what the needs are and so on and what it has to do. But in essence, uh, things aren't so dire as people might think in this country. And I might add that things are, are all, this is equally true for, uh, you know, most countries, most developed countries, certainly in the world. You don't have to have the world's reserve currency, you know, of course, that you, you refer to the dollar and its role in international transactions. Uh, you know, there are many countries that have enough to be able to do these kinds of things, to be able to spend without the kind of constraint that we've talked about as being some kind of a fallacy, where in essence, mm -hmm. uh, you risk you know, some form of veto by the bond markets or something like that, that then makes it impossible to, you know, spend what you would like based on the needs of the country, uh, objectives for unemployment, inflation, and so on. The functional finance that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. sort of to, to, use, to use spending as an instrument to accomplish things like meeting the needs of your population. Mm -hmm. But generally, this has been something of a misnomer in the debate. The countries that can do this really uh, were less lucky than that among the various countries. Mm -hmm. Certainly, what you need, in essence, is to be the issuer of your own currency. And in essence, uh, mo you know, most developed countries are easily in that position unless they do something special or unusual, one, mm -hmm. one thing to do is to, in essence, set up a currency board where you, mm -hmm. in essence, make another country's currency your currency, pegging, you know, mm -hmm. pegging it, say, do, you know, your currency one for one to the dollar uh -huh. or the eurozone, where, in essence, they have had some terrible problems with unemployment. They used to have admirably low Unemployment compared to the United States, say, say in the 60s or 70s, it was an era when they assumed really unemployment well below what we took for granted uh, yeah. in, in most uh, wealthy Western European countries, two or three percent or something in some of these like Switzerland were, were what they expected. And uh, it, it, it has been different because in essence, they are now forcing themselves and it's not easy to get out but they've decided to be on in essence what amounts to a foreign currency namely the single currency for the continent the euro which they each individual countries then do not issue they don't have a currency that they issue in order to you know spend what they need and that's led to massive unemployment that's the example I was going to cite, actually, was, you know, in the EU, you have this massive 
economic bloc that has effectively relinquished control over their own monetary sovereignty. I guess maybe to hone in on the most obvious example. So we had the Greek debt crisis, having been in, in Greece during the drachma days, they definitely have given up a great ability to inflate their way out of debt. Is there a way to unwind that? Or is there a way to make that better? Or I sadly uh, don't know about a way to make it work, except in essence, mm -hmm. to make it into one country. In essence, mm -hmm. it would be one country and the, there would be a fiscal authority, as they call it in, the, in this debate, Mm -hmm. at the euro level to be able mm -hmm. to spend in essence and it would be then more or less like the united states say where the individual states are constrained and mm -hmm. uh, the national government isn't i i i am saddened by by the euro and i i tend to think that you know these decisions are complicated there but that individual countries often, you know, should probably try, you know, try to get out of, of an unworkable situation in terms of the single currency, the euro. Well, and, and you even kind of see it in France today, where there is a lot of strife over the current level of unemployment. And do you, how, how much do you feel that's tied into France's presence in the euro? There's been strife because there have been some taxes imposed that are that are new that are creating uh these protests uh you know in the streets i guess over over taxes uh that the yellow vested protesters and so on uh it's a it's a tight and saddening situation i think and it has a lot to do with an artificial fiscal constraint uh having you know having to do with Eurozone membership. It's self-imposed. And I guess if we flip that on its head and we look at the UK, which chose to maintain its monetary sovereignty, they also kind of, I guess, you know, we're finding, I guess as we're talking about the about Europe, we're, we're finding multiple ways to shoot yourself in the foot because, you know, they chose intentionally to stay out of the EU or chosen, I should say, intentionally to uh, not adopt the euro, keep the pound. They kept their monetary sovereignty. But then during the financial crisis, they pursued this policy of austerity and, uh, and chose instead of taking on more debt to fund their government obligations, they chose to cut. And I I'd be interested in your comment on that. If you could go back and rewrite that, would the answer have been to issue more debt and take on more debt as a country? Because you have that luxury of issuing it in pounds. They faced multiple problems. It's interesting. To some extent, of course, they're, you know, more tied to imports and exports than we are because, you know, they're close to Europe. And of course, the Eurozone had had its troubles and that that also had ripple effects on the UK. You know, less less demand mm -hmm. for UK exports. But you're you're very much correct, I think, that they and many European countries chose policies that adjusted, in essence, in a way to make the problem worse. I guess, you know, perverse mm -hmm. is the term. And they cut debt, in essence, and uh, imposed what were called austerity policies, whereas one thing we did right was to 
not do too much of that. We tried stimulus to a greater extent and, mm-hmm. and had less of a recession, less unemployment mm-hmm. bro- broadly than some, you know, some of the European countries. And, you know, I, I would have had the U.S. do more stimulus also at that point, but that, that was part of the picture. You, you've certainly got that right, that they were too concerned and tried to, to win by cutting deficits at just the right, just the wrong time. And a follow-up question to that, too, because you bring up a good point, which is the UK is an island. So they are, unlike the United States, they are much more reliant on on trade. Is the UK in a different position than the US where maybe inflation is a more real threat because the amount that the pound can buy abroad could potentially decrease if they were going to go too crazy with that? Or am I incorrect in that assumption? Wow. Wow. That that's uh, I just made you say wow, so I'm just I'm just going <laughs> to say that there. Go on, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, I I think that uh, that's true of more open economies that, meaning they have more exports and imports as a percentage of their economy and have to be more exchange rate conscious when mm-hmm. they're trying to be inflation conscious. I mm-hmm. I think right now, you know, it's it's not going to be too bad about debt you know and the pound though of course mm-hmm. uh you know there's been some instability with all this going on there and i have made several unsuccessful attempts to succinctly explain the tenet of modern monetary theory or the tenet of why we shouldn't be worried about debt but it's not going to stop me from from doing it again um which is you know it, it sounds to me like like a lot of times as a you know as a country we as voters tend to look at government debt in the way we look at personal debt where personal debt is bad eventually we will need to repay that and the only means we have to repay that is our labor effectively is our ability to earn money and in the case of a government such as the United States where you're issuing a sovereign currency the income necessary to pay off that debt's a given it's built into the system. And really what we need to be more worried about is the balance of that debt against a number of other factors, uh, factors such as the exchange rate, factors such as how much slack is there in the economy and so on. Uh, I think you know the history of the US does show that the system can work you know, pretty smoothly. The US hasn't defaulted on its debt in its modern history it is mm-hmm. you know largely because of this fact that in essence it's it's the issuer of its own currency it's taken on debt in its mm-hmm. unit of account or the you know the currency that it it sets and so there really shouldn't be too much need to worry here or in another country like that just based on the history of a system where we've never had to default and that keeps interest rates rather low. So the U.S. currently enjoys low inflation, low interest rates, and the status as the world's reserve currency, giving us virtually unlimited borrowing power at this moment. And the markets don't really seem to be as concerned with the amount of debt we're taking on as they are with the political will we have to pay it. And that's evidenced by the fact that the only time the U.S. has seen a reduction 
in its credit rating in recent history was when Congress reached an impasse over how to fund the government. This gets back to an issue we're seeing again and again every month where government dysfunction appears to be a greater threat than any policy initiative. And, you know, this isn't to say it's all rosy because keep in mind, most mortgage-backed securities were rated AAA in 2008 before the market realized they were full of garbage. And, you know, the lesson here is just as the market soured on mortgage-backed securities when they realized they were financial sausages stuffed with borrowers who couldn't pay their debts back, the market will sour on U.S. securities if our ability to pay back our debts, that's our prospect for economic growth, begins to dim. And a lot of this depends on making the right investments with the money we're taking loans out on, which, if you look at the federal budget, is about a third Social Security unemployment, about 25% Medicare and healthcare, 16% military, 6% interest on the debt, leaving a whopping 18% to spend on other things. And for those of you concerned about the sustainability of a government that continues to take on debt without cutting spending, you know, we're lucky to have a historical precedent for a once preeminent global power that chose to address its debt issue with austerity, that is budget cuts, only to find itself diminished on the world stage decades later. I'm talking about the British Empire, and we're going to talk with PhD candidate at Cambridge University, Tim Studebaker, next week. Now, I told you the site was coming out this week, but now it's coming out next week. That is YDHTY.com. I'm going to keep making this announcement every episode until I'm right. As always, theme music courtesy of Krellertack, sound quality, and other audio stuff courtesy of Mr. Madness, the executioner, the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.